Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, listeners. I appreciate you all listening in and all you're doing to share this podcast. We believe about ten to 15,000 listen to every episode. And that's um, a thanks to you, our listeners. It's a particularly a thanks to our guests that come on and share their stories. This is the safe place to share stories, some that are pretty difficult. Um, but I think we need to hear stories so that we have perspective from others that can help us um, work through difficult things that come into our own life. And one of those people on the podcast today is my friend, Ashley Rankin. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thanks for having me. Will you spell your first and last name for our listeners? Yes, Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, Rankin, R-A-N-K-I-N. And um, I am in Salt Lake City in my home, and Ashley is joining me via Zoom. So I can see Ashley. You can't see Ashley because we're just recording the audio. Um, I just, my wife and I just volunteered at the cannery. So my hands, we've been doing apples for the last four hours, but you can't (laughs) smell my apple hands, listeners. But it was fun to work an assembly line at the cannery and see how well the church operates and the food they produce. We're going to talk about Ashley's divorce. Um, She was in a very difficult marriage, and that ended about two years ago. Ashley's in her mid-20s. She's a graduate from BYU College of Nursing in December of 2019. Um, Now is an RN in an OBGYN clinic, which is a cool place to be as as beautiful babies are born. Um, But our hope is that this podcast will help you. If any of you have gone through a divorce or in a really difficult, abusive relationship or marriage, the things Ashley share will be helpful for you. And if you're trying to help somebody that's in a tough situation, our prayers that thoughts will and ideas will come into your mind to help somebody. Um, I really admire Ashley just being willing to talk about this. This is one of those difficult topics to talk about somebody in their 20s that's gone through a divorce. I'm sure if I had talked to Ashley as a Maya maid, we don't have Maya maids anymore. This was not something you were planning that would be part of your future. So Ashley, will you introduce ourselves to introduce you to our listeners? Yeah. So um, my name is Ashley Rankin. I was raised in Cedar Hill, Utah, and I am the youngest of five kids. And I have eight nieces and nephews, which I just found out two on the way, (laughs) Um, which is exciting. I grew up playing soccer and graduated from Lone Peak High School in 2013, after which I attended my freshman year at Utah State University. And then after a year there, I served a mission in San Antonio, Texas, where I got to learn ASL, which was really fun. I loved it. It was the best experience of my life. I loved every second of it. Um, I returned home from my mission in early 2016 and started at BYU in the fall. Uh, that So January of 2017, I started the nursing program. I graduated in December of 19. And now, um, as, as you know, I work as a labor and delivery nurse and a women's services nurse. Um, and I love my job. So uh, just a a little bit background with my story. Um, I, my ex-husband and I will just call him Joe for the sake of easiness. Um, We met in June of 2016 
and we dated for a summer and a semester, got engaged in October. Um, we quickly fell in love and bonded over uh, lots of things, our future goals, uh, mutual interests, attraction, spirituality, um, among other things. And we got sealed in the temple just a few days before I started the nursing program at BYU in January of 2017. So there's a lot going on that January, but it was all good, exciting changes. Um, kind of the, the revelation process, because after you get divorced, you can look back and say, was it really God who told me to marry this person and stuff like that? So my revelation process, um, of course, I had some worries and fears or concerns going in, um, but I think anytime you make a big decision, you might have some questions. I counseled with a lot of different people, and I remember very vividly uh, kind of receiving a promise that was threefold. It was a promise that Heavenly Father brings true to my heart, and it was that if me and Joe both remain true to our covenants, then we would have a family with children who had two parents who loved each other, who loved them, and who loved the Lord. And that's all really that I could ask for. That's what I wanted. And so with that promise, I kind of, um, the concerns that I had, they, they weren't anything huge. And so I just kind of, you know, moved forward with faith that despite my fears, God would consecrate my love for this man. And we would be able to have a long, happy marriage and eternal companionship. So, um, and it was great. We had, during our first year, it was kind of a difficult first year, as many people experience. The first couple of years of marriage can be tricky as you're learning to adjust to live with someone. Um, and some of the doubts that I had while we were dating and engaged carried on into the marriage. And within the first few months, he developed what he identified as depression. Um, we were both about 21 at this time, and neither of us really had the emotional intelligence or the communication skills to properly navigate uh, those experiences with the most grace. Um, but I don't believe that our we had it abnormally hard or uh, difficult. We had lots of good times. We loved each other, and we laughed together, and we had fun together. And so the good definitely outweighed the bad. Um, until about 11 months in, I think our, uh, poor communication turned into aggressive communication. And, um, the man that I married, um, when I met him, he was gentle and kind, uh, soft-spoken, mild-tempered, hardworking, just among many other, other good qualities but he became easy to anger, uh, volatile. It kind of felt like you were walking on eggshells. He began to tell lies, um, dropped out of school and kept it a secret from me and his family. Wouldn't look for a job, wasn't really willing to help around the house. Um, and I think it's important to note at this point, we were living with his parents kind of during this whole while this whole thing was taking place, we lived with them for about nine months while we were waiting for our apartment to open up. Um, 
So his parents also noticed a change in behavior and personality and response. Um, and so we, his parents and I, we both kind of approached him and would ask him what's wrong. And he recognized that he was also changing as well, um, but he couldn't figure out what it was. He, he didn't like the way he was acting, but he couldn't figure out what it was. It just, he felt depressed and he didn't know how to fix it. So um, around February, so we'd been married for just over a year, the aggressive communication that he had developed turned abusive, turns into abusive emotional abuse and verbal abuse. And it really, I think the tipping point was a conversation that I had with him. Um, it'd been months of this back and forth depression, not really sure how to act or react to his behavior and his words. And so we, um, I, I sat down with him and I promised that I was going to be supportive and loving and understand and I wouldn't get angry. I just wanted to know what was going on. Um, honestly, I, I was expecting some confession of some sort of a big mistake that he had made. Um, just because his behavior and personality had changed so much, I felt that that was really the only explanation. So I was preparing myself for that. Um, when we sat down, he took the day and he kind of composed his thoughts. And when we sat down together, I re-emphasized that promise that I made that I would be understanding and loving and I wouldn't be angry. And I, would, I was just there to support him. So understanding that he, uh, he told me that he had finally identified the source of his depression, which was being married to me. Yikes. Yeah. Um, and he brought with him a long list of attributes or things about me that made him depressed. Um, just so you kind of get a, a picture of what type of things were on the list. It was anything from my taste in music to the fact that I'm allergic to dogs. He expressed to me that, um, I had gained some weight and he was, he told me he was becoming less and less attracted to me every single day. Um, it was just a long list of my qualities and personality traits that made him depressed. And he finished with the worst part is that there's nothing you can do to change these things because it's just who you are. Um, at that point, I'm sitting there listening to this and because of the codependency that we already had in our relationship, um, and for those who don't know, codependency is defined um, just on Google. I just Googled it, and it's defined as excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner, typically one who requires support on an account of illness or addiction. Um, in our relationship, that codependence manifests itself as me feeling 100% responsible for his happiness and giving the control over my happiness to him. Um, so anyway, because of our codependency, uh, my response to those things were, well, we can get a hypoallergenic dog and I'll lose some weight. And when we're together, we'll just listen to your music. Um, and I, I listed off very detailed things on how I could change who I was and the hobbies that I had and the interests that I had. Um, and, you know, 
I think this also came from the fact that before and during my marriage, I often received advice from people who had strong marriages that said anytime there was something wrong in your marriage, you should first take a look at yourself. And maybe you need to do some repenting and you need to make change. And so, and if you change, then that will fix the problem. And although I agree to that in a healthy marriage, <clears throat> in a codependent, abusive one, that advice is not helpful. It causes harm. And so anyway, this conversation kind of oozed into daily behaviors and daily conversations. Uh, multiple times a day, I was apologizing for the things on his list. And I was explaining how I could make it better. And he would respond with something to the something to the effect of, um, yeah, you can try that, but I, I don't think it will work. I don't think that would make me happy. And so I'd go to the drawing board again and try to think of something else that I could do or something else I could change or more. I just needed to be more. Uh, he told me, and I believe, that if I could just change or be enough, then he would love me. Then he would be happy. Then his depression would go away. Then our marriage would be better. And so if all those, if I could just change and if I could be enough, then he could be happy, which would allow him to make me happy. Again, that codependent behavior. Um, and this kind of morphed into, uh, he didn't, he wanted, he would go on hiking trips and he wouldn't invite me because he was embarrassed to be seen with me or I wasn't allowed to go hang out with uh, his friends, even though there were other uh, women and single women there because he had to act differently when I was around. And he was just embarrassed. And when I would explain to him that these things were hurtful, he would gaslight me. And uh, for those who don't know, um, gaslighting is when someone tries to make you question your reality or truth in order to avoid responsibility on their part. Um, so with us, a common one example would be that he told me that I was an embarrassment to him. And I would explain, you know, when you tell me that it, it's hurtful and he would respond with something, well, would you rather have him lie about it? At least I'm being honest. And that made me question my reality because I valued honesty and I valued integrity. Um, and so I was confused because is honesty more important or is kindness more important? And then eventually I would just get confused enough that I would say, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. And then I would end up apologizing for something else that I had done. I love you sharing the definition of gaslighting and that, ex and that specific experience. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I also think it's important to note here that sometimes when we think of victims of abuse, and I think I was in this mindset as well, you picture someone who's quiet and self-spoken, reserved, and um, there's a personality type that's more susceptible to abuse. And I just want to point out that I'm a very assertive person, and I would stand up for myself. Abuse is not limited to one type of person or one personality. Everyone is susceptible to being abused if you're with an abusive person. And so you, the abuse has nothing to do with the victim and everything to do with the abuser. Um, so just kind of continuing on, on in the story and just giving you a little more insight into my headspace. Um, my first panic attack was while we were watching TV one time and it just this overwhelming 
wall hit me. Um, and I'm at this point or now I know that it's not, these thoughts weren't true, but at the time I was overwhelmed with the fact that if Joe left me, it would be because I was not good enough for him and I wouldn't blame him for leaving. And so I kind of went into a panic attack because there, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to change. And he was sitting next to me, just kind of watching me go through this panic attack. And I expressed to him my concerns that if the marriage is over, it's my fault because I, I'm not good enough. And he agreed. He agreed that if our marriage ended, it would have been because I was not good enough. Uh, I learned to hate myself. I excused his behavior. Uh, and after the fact, I always forgave him because I deserved it and everything he said was true. And I remember one time walking into an elevator and there was a mirror in the elevator and there were a couple of people already standing there. I walk in, I saw myself in the mirror and I just became overcome with sadness for the people riding in the elevator that they had to interact with me because my belief about myself was that I was a dark cloud. Everywhere I went, I brought sorrow and pain and unhappiness. The world would be better off without me. And the world would be brighter and everyone would be happier if I was not in the world. And these strangers should never have to ride up this elevator with me. And I was just so ashamed of myself. My self-esteem was really dark and it was really scary. Um, I had never experienced those thought, those kind of thoughts about myself before. Um, luckily, we had in April-ish of 2018, we had a very, very inspired bishop who had been in our ward or our bishop for most of our married life. And he noticed the darkness that had come over me. And so after church one day, he pulled me into his office and he said, hey, Ash, what's going on? I I've just watched all of the light drain out of you over the past several months. And for the first time I opened up to someone except for Joe's parents, they, they kind of knew what was going on. We lived with them and we didn't live in a basement apartment. We lived, um, we shared living space or our bedroom was just a few away from theirs. And so um, they knew what was going on, but I hadn't told friends. I hadn't told my family. I was just too embarrassed that my marriage was so difficult. And so it was relieving to finally open up to the bishop about this. And um, after he talked to me for a little bit, he brought Joe into the room with us. And at this point, I it wasn't even close to identifying the things I was going through as abuse. It was just uh, written off in my mind as this is how depressed people treat other people. That was my thought. Um, and so with through the counsel of the bishop, he recommended that Joe go to uh, therapy and possibly start on medications to help with his depression. Uh, he Joe went to his first session at LDS Family Services and came home just elated. He went to the library and bought some self-help books. And he told me that, you know, this, this is going to work. Like, I had such an amazing session and I'm so excited. And I was thrilled. Because if we could just manage his depression, then we could work on making me happy. And then we could uh, fix our marriage. So um, after his first session, his therapist at LDS Family Services 
recommended that I join him for the second session. Um, and that we started doing therapy as a couple. So uh, going into therapy, I had the belief and the hope that our therapist was there to support us and strengthen our marriage and bless our lives and help us communicate better. And it was just going to be 100% positive thing. I knew it was going to be difficult, but I believed it would be a helpful thing. Um, it was not. Therapy was horrible. Uh, she would consistently validate his abusive behavior and give me homework of things that I needed to do and change. And she would tell me that I needed to be more trusting and more um, open and just kind of a soft, she used the terminology that I should just be a soft place for him to land because uh, he's going through a really hard time. Um, and that just reinforced my belief that I could, if, if I could just do more or be more, then I would be able to make him happy and then our marriage would work. Uh, once we separated a few months later and we stopped going to therapy, I confronted the therapist about the things that had been confusing to me and hurtful to me. And she explained that after her first appointment with Joe, she suspected narcissistic personality traits or tendencies. And so she, the reason she invited me to therapy in the first place is because she wanted to get the whole picture. She wanted to see who the other person was in this relationship. And then after our first session together, she knew that I was in an abusive narcissistic situation and she didn't believe that I would be able to recognize it on my own. Um, and Richard, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just share some uh, traits or qualities of narcissism. Please do, Ashley. Okay, so the, the Mayo Clinic um, has a really great list that kind of outlines it really uh, neatly. And I'll just share uh, 10 or so of them, but uh, just pay attention if, if any of the listeners recognize these in, their, in themselves or in their relationships. Um, it's just good, good to become aware. So um, Mayo Clinic says that symptoms of narcissism are that the narcissist will have an exaggerated sense of self-importance, exaggerated achievements and talents, be preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty, or the perfect mate, uh, belittle or look down on people they perceive as inferior, have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs and feelings of others, be envious and believe that others envy them, become impatient or angry when they don't receive special treatments, have significant interpersonal problems and easily feel slighted, react with rage or contempt and try to belittle the other person to make themselves appear superior, have difficulty regulating emotions and behavior, experience major, major problems dealing with stress and adapting to change, feel depressed and moody because they fall short of perfection, and have secret feelings of insecurity, shame, vulnerability, and humiliation. So um, that's kind of the, the personality or the person that I was uh, working with on a day-to-day -day basis. And as you can imagine, trying to improve a marriage or improve a relationship with someone who um, has those personality traits is very difficult. So Anyway, the, the therapist, her goal was to drive a wedge between us. And her thought was, if I, I was too close to the situation. So if she could just get me further away, then I would be able to realize, and then I would lose the marriage. Um, 
But because I went in believing that she was there to help strengthen our marriage, and I trusted her to be a source of of light, and she worked for LDS Family Services, so I believed that she had a gospel-centered mindset and approach to this marriage. Um, her her implementation of driving a wedge between us just caused more trauma and actually enabled and worsened the abuse at home. And so, although she had good intentions, um, the way it was implemented and the perception that I had on what to expect from therapy just made everything worse. Um, after a few months of therapy, uh, I was implementing every suggestion and just giving, 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 giving. Um, I was working full time to provide for our family and um, I was in the nursing program. And I just had a lot on my plate and I kind of reached my breaking point. Um, I was exhausted and I approached Joe and I said, Joe, I feel exhausted and I feel like my needs have been ignored for months. And I'm wondering if you would hear me out, if we can have a discussion about how we can possibly um, move forward with helping my needs be met. Um, and he, and remember, we were very codependent. And so I was responsible for his happiness and he was responsible for my happiness. And so um, that's why I was really asking. And then he said, um, his response to that was he was, was confusion. He wasn't sure why I would be um, bringing this up because in his mind, we had been doing better than we had for a long time. And I was actually thrilled to hear this because things were finally starting to turn around. And I buried my needs down once again with the belief that soon, very, very soon, his depression would lighten and then we could focus on my needs. Um, and our next therapy session, he, the next one or the one after that, he told me that he wanted to get divorced. And so to everyone listening, it might sound obvious that this is where our marriage was going, uh, but I believed in miracles. We had a temple marriage. God had promised that he would strengthen our marriage. Um, Joe had told me that we were getting better. And I had complete trust and faith in a miracle to take place in my marriage. So him telling me that he wanted to get divorced was a huge shock to me. I felt betrayed and abandoned and really worse of all, I truly believed that if our marriage ended, then everything he had told me, everything he had said was actually true. And it ended because of how horrible I am. And I was, because of that, it, it felt like a life or death situation. I felt like I was desperately clinging to the last life that I had because even I knew he didn't love me at that time, but he had once. And I didn't believe that anyone else ever could love me. I was not worthy of love. And so it felt like a life or death situation. I was desperate to save this marriage. Um, I didn't believe that anyone would ever forgive me. Not my family or my friends. Not, no one would forgive me for allowing this marriage to be a failure. And I couldn't, I just couldn't let him go. And I know it seems backwards, but when you're in the cycle of abuse and codependency, and narcissism, it just, it just is where I was. 
And I wish that I could sit here and tell you that, no, I I knew my self-worth and I had self-respect and I recognized the abuse and I was strong enough to walk out of that marriage. And I was the one who filed for divorce and who left. Um, but that's not, that's not the case. I hadn't recognized the abuse yet. I had no self-worth. I didn't believe, I believed that this is what I deserved, but I didn't want it. And I just felt like a failure, embarrassment, and I was ashamed. I was so ashamed. And looking back, honestly, I recognize the fact that my ex was the one who walked away as a godsend. Because it's not very often that narcissistic abusers leave the relationship because that's where they're that's where they're getting all their energy. And so the fact that he left was really a godsend and God was watching out for me. Um, after several panicked attempts of asking him and begging him to not make the decision to not leave me yet, he agreed that he would kind of postpone or delay or think about um, being married for a little bit longer. And in my mind, I was 100% in the marriage until he was 100% out. So I came up with a game plan, very detailed game plan of something that I would do every single day to help him remind, to remind him why he loved me and why I was worth fighting for. Um, again, I, I wish I had recognized the situation I was in, but I didn't. Um, and so this is not the right thing to do, but it's where I was at at the time. And I just felt like I needed to do something to try to save my marriage and to save him and make him happy. So during the summer, we lived apart. And um, at that point, I started doing some research, um, just joined some Facebook support groups of other separated LDS members of the church. And um, I started hearing words like emotional abuse and gaslighting and narcissism for the first time and boundaries. And I felt like I was reading through some people's experiences and I was like, wow, were they there when we had that conversation? Are they talking about my marriage? And I started to recognize these abuse tactics and techniques and um, in other people's experiences or marriages. And I started to do some research about them um, on my own. And so um, come August, we had separated the end of June, beginning of July. Um, and it, the first weekend in August and I'm preparing to fast and um, I started my fast and for the first time my prayer changed it changed from begging Heavenly Father to create a miracle and to save my marriage to Heavenly Father I want my marriage to work I want it to work and I'm willing to put in the effort to make it work but if there's been too much trauma and too much abuse and too much uh, that it just won't work, or if in the end it's just going to be drug out and then he's going to end up leaving anyway, or if he's made choices that we can't come back from, then please have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me and just let it be over. But I'm willing to fight if that's the miracle you can provide. That was my prayer, and I started my fast, and um all this new information and education I'd been receiving led me to a book called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. And um, it's a 325-page book, I believe, that I read in one sitting. Well, I read 
the whole time I was fasting. And then after I finished the book, I carefully constructed a message to send to him, um, outlining some very, very basic boundaries that if our relationship was going to move forward, we needed to have. Um, and when I say basic, I mean things like if a phone call becomes aggressive, then I have the right to hang up or I don't have to respond to an unkind text message. Um, I will just wait for him to initiate spending time with me. Just very basic things like that. Um, and I sent the message and then I knelt down and I prayed to complete my fast. And I just reiterated the prayer of Heavenly Father, I want my marriage to work. I'm willing to put in the effort and I have faith that it can. But if not, then help me be okay and help this to be over and have mercy on me. And when I stood up from ending my fast, my phone vibrated just a few seconds later and there was a response from Joe. Uh, he was very upset and he called me names and thanked me for finally making it clear to him that he didn't want to be married to me and he asked for a divorce. Um, initially, I felt peace. Um, I just fasted and I just asked Heavenly Father for this result, if that's how it was going to end. And so my fast and prayers were answered very quickly. Um, so I felt peace, but very quickly thereafter, darkness and anxiety and pain and confusion and abandonment and every bad emotion you can think of sudden. Um, I remained composed for that whole day. Um, and I went to my family's house for dinner. Then on my drive home, I was just kind of thinking and the, the magnitude of my situation hit me all at once. And I went into a panic attack. And if you've had a panic attack, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, uh, picture an elephant sitting on your chest while you're trying to run a marathon and how your body would physically respond to that. My chest was tight. My throat was tightening up. Um, my heart was pounding. I could visibly see my, my rib cage going in and out and in and out with every heartbeat. It was going faster than I could count. And I thought I was going to die. And luckily I had the wherewithal to call my best friend. The reason I share this is because she is the perfect example of what to do when someone you love is going through grief um, or someone you love is having a panic attack where it's just a difficult situation. And I called her and all she said was, Ash, I don't know what to say and I don't know what to do right now, but I'm here for you. And then she proceeded to just kind of talk, tell me random things about her day. Um, there was no pep talk no pep talk or motivation or um, empty promise. She just was there with me. She stared my grief in the face and said, this isn't too much for me. I can handle your pain and I'll hold it with you. And she was genuinely an angel in my eyes. And that's all that people need. They just need you to be there, to exist with them. They don't need pep talks and they don't need encouragement. Um, so eventually I calmed down and I was able to drive to a safe place and um, move forward, but she really did uh, save me in that moment. And I'm so grateful for, uh, my support system, but this, this August, you know, and October is when our divorce is finally finalized, but that's where my trauma ends and my healing process was able to begin. My pain didn't end. 
in no way did my pain end, but I was no longer being traumatized day after day after day. And I finally had the space and the environment and the support I needed to be able to find healing. Thank you, Ashley. I wish our listeners could see your beautiful face and it's full of light and goodness and there's tears streaming down your eyes as you're sharing this really painful story. Um, It seems like you did everything you could to make this work and you weren't perfect. I'm not perfect in my marriage. But it seems like you did everything you could to make this work and it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And and rightly so, that feels there's so much pain and failure. And um, I think you're really, really courageous, strong, um, capable woman um, to be able to walk this road, a road that's really hard to walk because no people, it's hard to find other people walking the same road. I love the book that you talked about boundaries and understanding some of the things that were going on. I encourage our listeners that wondering if they're in a toxic relationship or an unhealthy, there's obviously relationships that go through difficult chapters at the core is a good, healthy relationship. But then there's relationships like the one you're in, the core is not healthy and it's not making you a better person and it's toxic and my experience with toxic relationships is you need to separate yourself from toxic relationships. And if it's your own marriage, that would be, you know, something would be a logical thing to seriously explore or do if it's not fixable. So Mm -hmm. I think you've done the right thing here. So just keep telling your story because now I'm guessing that this is the beginning of just all sorts of new pain and trauma, but -hmm. also the beginning of the road to fully healing. So it just, and that was a common occurrence for me, panic attacks and anxiety and depression and not knowing what to do and not knowing how to handle it. And I was still trying to work full time and I was still trying to go to nursing school and I was still trying to be a good friend and a good disciple of Christ. And at this point, so we filed in August and then our divorce was finalized in October. And there's a part in the church handbook that says that um, people who are divorced, that's not finalized yet, cannot, are not welcome to attend single adult activities or church, Um, which was really hard for me because I, walking into church for the first time to the same ward that my ex-husband and I had been going to, I I lasted about five minutes before I ran out with tears streaming down my face and sat in mother's lounge, um, just trying to compose myself. I sat in the foyer, collected the sacrament, and then I left. And um, every week I was terrified to go to church. Um, But I did it because at that point I had very little to give to Heavenly Father because I had so much pain and fear and anger. I had very, very little to give to him. And so what I did have is 30 minutes every Sunday to go to church and take the sacrament and to read my scriptures every day and to pray. That's what I could give him at that time. I didn't have very much faith as I saw it or up to that point, what I believed faith to be. I didn't necessarily have that. And so I gave him what I could. And um, one of the things that I learned very early on um, 
well-meaning friends and family would tell me, you know, God has a plan for you. It's, it's all going to work out and um, it's all part of God's plan for you. And before we came to this earth, we chose our trials. And you knew that you were going to experience this and you chose it anyway. And it's all going to be okay. And I'm so grateful for my friends and family and the support that they gave me. But that was not helpful. That was not helpful at all. Why? Because if this was part of God's plan, if this pain and hurt and abuse and divorce is part of God's plan, then I, that's not the God that I know. And I, I was seriously, early on, I spent a lot of time in my scriptures pondering this, just asking, God, is this really part of your plan? Because that's what everyone keeps telling me. And through my studies, I've had a very difficult time finding scriptural basis for this statement that it's all part of God's plan. Um, there's tons and tons of examples of God sending trials and tribulation to the wicked. When I say wicked, I don't mean, oops, I, I messed up with my boyfriend, but I have a repentant heart and I want to do better. When I say wicked, I mean uh, people who are actively destroying faith and family with no regret. And God has sent trials to them. But to his faithful, I don't believe that God gives us our trials. I believe that our trials come from the fall. We exist in fallen bodies, interacting with fallen people in a fallen earth. And in fact, a lot of the trials that we face in this life are the opposite of God's plan. God's plan is to strengthen and create families, not divorce. God's plan is for you. He actually commands you to start families, to multiply and replenish the earth. He doesn't damn you with infertility or remove potential partners from your life when you have a desire to be married and to start a family. He's promised that our lands, our lands will be full of bounty, not natural disasters. And so I realized that God does not give us our trials. The fall gives us our trials, but God will consecrate them. And I remember sitting there That's reading cool. my scriptures. That's really cool, Ashley. Keep going. I remember reading my scriptures and just saying, Heavenly Father, how can this be part of your plan? How can this be part of your plan? And I just pictured a gentle, kind, loving God coming and sitting next to me, holding my hand saying, oh, Ashley, it's not. My plan is that you'll have joy and that you'll feel light and love and return to me and grow in faith. My plan is not divorce. I would have. I would have saved your marriage. I would have made this miracle that you were begging for. But I can't interfere with agency. And we're dealing with a fallen being who's using his agency. And I am so sorry. If there is anything that I could do to take this from you, I would. But I can't. And there are lessons that I need you to know for your future service in my kingdom. And I would have taught you, taught you them in a different way later on in life. But we have this opportunity to learn and to grow together. And every ounce of pain and sorrow and regret and embarrassment and shame that you feel now, I will consecrate to your gain and to the building of my kingdom, if you'll stay with me. 
And so that day that I said, yeah, God, I'll stay with you. And he has, he stayed with me and I've stayed with him and he has consecrated every single ounce of pain and sorrow that I've experienced. I also heard often people tell me time heals all wounds. Just, just, you know, I know it's hard right now, but just give it some time. Like you'll heal. And that also was not hopeful. And I asked God, I said, God, does time really heal all wounds? Because I can't imagine that time will heal me. And I've learned, and he kind of helped me see that healing is not a passive experience. You don't just sit by and become healed and become whole. It requires action and it requires faith. And time may be a great revealer. And with time, you get understanding and insight like I did with my divorce and with the marriage that I was in. Time brought insight and it revealed. So if time is the great revealer, Christ is the great healer. And it's only through Christ that we can be healed, regardless of the time that it takes. If we trust in him, if we have faith in him, if we love him, and we're actively engaged in our healing process, Christ will heal us. And so those two lessons were just kind of a, a really good start for me that I learned really early on. Um, and another, another thing that I learned early on was about forgiveness, because we can't talk about abuse and difficult relationships without talking about forgiveness. Um, and I, up to this point, I'd always considered myself a very forgiving person. Forgiveness had always come easy to me. Um, and, but I remember sitting there and asking Heavenly Father, how can I forgive him for this? How, how can I forgive him for this? This is too much, I can't do it. The anger and the pain is too much. And God often talks to me in analogies. And so I got this analogy in my head that um, experiences or people who hurt us are like we're wear wearing a belt and one end of a rope is tied to us and the other end of the rope is tied to that experience or that person. And as long as the rope is connected, that experience or person has power over us, power to control our emotions, to control our actions, um, to control our thoughts and behavior. All forgiveness is, has absolutely zero to do with that person. Zero to do with that person. Because all forgiveness is, is taking a pair of scissors and snipping the rope, cutting off their power source. And then in order to heal, that the end of that rope is going to be frayed and falling apart and painful. And so now what we do is we place the end of that rope into a proper source, which is Jesus Christ, and he can heal and he can protect. And instead of holding us back and having that tie create pain and uh, steps backwards, it pushes us forward and it motivates us and it excites us and it brings hope and healing into our lives. And so forgiveness 
really has zero to do with the other person and 100% to do with the savior. You don't have to have good feelings towards someone to forgive them. You just have to have good feelings towards the savior to forgive them. That's um, some great segments there, Ashley. I love, I love, I call them platitudes. Um, one of my earlier guests, Dr. Eric Huntsman at BYU, kind of taught me what a platitude was. I say something that kind of keeps everything emotionally safe for me, but it, keep, but it keeps me from fully engaging into the complexity of someone else's situation and, and my ability to bear more in comfort because I just point to it's all part of God's plan or time heals all wounds. And we naturally want to say those comforting things, but that's a platitude. And I like that you recognize those weren't helpful. And I think, I think that's part of the beauty of this podcast is people recognizing the deep pain they feel and the trauma they feel and the complexity of their road isn't just soothed with a simple statement. And it shouldn't be. And they should feel permission to feel the complexity of their situation and the deep work it takes in these situations to find healing and hope, which you're which you've been walking this road for a couple of years and even since the divorce and in the marriage, walking it for at least a year of the marriage. Um, th- that was, that's powerful stuff. I actually really like what you said. I loved where you just sat next to God and you had that conversation with your heavenly father. Yeah. And, and I love what he told you. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is more healing than any, anything he, I just love your personal revelation on that and what he said to you and, and the, and this fallen world and the agency of other people and how that wasn't his plan. He didn't want you to feel that. And I love that you recognize the God that you love and have served in San Antonio and, and in your professional life, um, just helping people that that was not reconcilable with the God that you know. And I love that you reconciled that because it isn't what he wanted for you. Yeah. And I also think it's important to point out that there were plenty of times where I was asking God for answers and he gave them and, or asking God for comfort, begging God for comfort and he brought it. But there are also plenty of times where I was asking God for answers and I didn't get it right. And um, one of the, I mean, the things that I mentioned before are one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily go through a huge time of deep anger towards God for, because he did promise me that my marriage would, would work. And so, but because of everything that I learned, I recognized that this isn't God this isn't an angry, spiteful God uh, cursing me. It's a loving, caring God honoring my agency to marry who I wanted to marry and giving the promise that he would consecrate faithfulness as he always does. And then the agency of my ex-husband and God having to live up to his standards and God still consecrating my pain. And that was something I remember um, many times, many, many times crying on the floor in a ball 
in the fetal position, just begging God for comfort, to send the comforter. You always hear people say that it felt like a blanket or that there was a big hug wrapped around you. And I was begging for that. And it didn't come. And I remember one time in particular where I was begging for that and it didn't come and it didn't come. So I started reading my scriptures. And I, of course, I went to the scriptures that say, um, that talk about how Christ will uh, carry the yoke and will lighten your burden and everything like that. And I, and I just said, Heavenly Father, this is confusing because I am being faithful and I'm doing everything that I need to, but my burden does not feel light. This burden does not feel lighter because I believe in you. But I believe the scriptures are true. And so I, I'm having a difficult time rec reconciling this principle that the Savior, that you will lighten my, carry my yoke and lighten my burden when it doesn't feel like that in this application, in this situation. And so I asked Heavenly Father, I said, please help me have some insight into this because I know that the Book of Mormon is true. I have no doubt. And so this has to be true. I just don't know how it applies to my current situation. So will you please help me understand that? And I sat on that question for about a year, nine months to a year of just, you know, it's just kind of always in the back of my head where, where was God in that time? How were my burdens lightened in that time? How does this scriptural principle that is supposed to bring so much hope to our lives apply to my situation when it doesn't feel like it's applying the way that I'm reading the scripture. And about a year later, I was studying my scriptures. I had nothing, I wasn't studying anything to do with um, my question, but all of a sudden it just occurred to me that as we know, God's timetable or his perspective on time is not the same as our perspective on time. And when God says that he'll lighten our burdens, maybe he doesn't mean he'll lighten our burdens in that exact moment that we're asking for our burdens to be light. Maybe because of the pain that I felt that winter, especially in the year following my divorce, every time I didn't feel God, now, today, my burden is lightened because of that pain I felt. And God is not a God of one time or of the present. He's a God of the past, the present, and the future. And so when we are willing to grieve and mourn with God as Christ did and still remain true and faithful to him, even though we have this immense pain, the burdens that come from PTSD and trauma will be lightened in the future. And you asked me before if I had hope that I could still find a happy marriage. And I believe that I can, and that healthy, happy love exists, and that I can have that. And I truthfully, honestly believe that the reason that I'm two years out from my divorce, that was horrible and painful, and I can say that I have that hope, is because on a Tuesday afternoon, when I was lying on my bedroom floor in a ball, begging for God to hear me and to lighten my burdens, but he didn't, he consecrated that pain for my benefit today and for my benefit in 10 years. 
and for my benefit in 20 years when I'm talking with another member of the Relief Society and she's crying on her bedroom floor on a Tuesday afternoon asking God where he is. He consecrated my pain so that I can be his hand in that situation in the future. And so I just say to all the listeners, if you are there right now begging for God's comfort, asking him where he is, pleading for him to come, don't turn your back on him now. Because this pain that you're feeling, you're acquainting yourself with the pain that the Savior felt on your behalf. And he will consecrate it for your gain in the future. I am a living testimony of that fact right there. Just want to sit in what you just said. I don't want to say anything, Ashley. <clears throat> it's really powerful. You know the Savior. You know the atonement, not from a theoretical um, standpoint because you've lived it and you've walked the road, and you've paid the price, and you haven't paid it from an academic, theoretical, you've paid it because you've had to walk this road. And I love the word, your use of the word consecration. It's just a deeply moving story. Um, the principles you're sharing apply to all of us. I think more of us are in difficult situations than we've then I realize what goes on in people's lives and they need the principles that you're sharing and have you've learned firsthand. And um, I'm drawn to a, a president or um, elder Holland's talk from October conference. And all I can remember is just, he kind of went through how hard life is. <laughs> yeah. And he kind of closed with this line by and by. And I, it's just a simple line, but it just sort of gave me hope that by and by, it wasn't some magical formula. It wasn't a platitude of, it was just sort of life's hard and by and by, it just gets better as we hang in there. I love that. Um, I remember talking to the YSAs, you know, as a breakup occurred and I wasn't a married ward bishop, so I wasn't talking to married couples that went through divorce, but I love the advice that John, by the way, gave. Because um, sometimes when couples are divorced, they'd still care for that person and they'd want to help them. And he said, let the Savior save them. <laughs> Turn them over to the Savior and their support group. Your job isn't to save them, even though you care about them. You need to move forward in your own life. And I don't know if you want to talk about your ex-husband, obviously there's been pain and trauma and you've had to separate yourself and move forward. I don't know if you want to talk about just how, you, this is sort of you talking to others that still on some level care for somebody that has still been a different part of a different part of their life and just how you navigate that going forward. Yeah, that's, that's actually a, a really big struggle because it was really hard for me to turn off the love and devotion and loyalty that I showed to my abuser, my ex-husband. Um, even once the abuse stopped because the marriage stopped, I still had that love and devotion and loyalty. And it was quite confusing because I was just thinking, well, how could I, 
how could I feel loyal and love for someone who hurt me so deeply? And, and it's okay. And it's normal to feel that way. Good. And um, what I realized is that's honestly what charity is. That's what the pure love of Christ is, is it's, a, it's the ability to love people despite the fact that they hurt you. And so I don't think that you need to be over-consumed with, why do I still love him? Why do I still care about him? Why do I still have compassion for him? Um, because that's just a natural human experience. And um, when, you, when you've given part of your life to someone to love them, the thing that I think you should stress and be concerned about and work towards is um, boundaries and implementing boundaries into your life. Because when you, boundaries shape the way love is expressed. And so I'm not going to tell you that you can't love or you can't have compassion or understanding for someone who's hurt you, but you need boundaries around that love. And you need boundaries to protect yourself on how that love is expressed or how that love is thought about um, or understood so that you can place yourself in a safe place for healing and empowerment. And then over time, you may, time is, like I said, time is the great revealer. So you may get some additional insights that, you know, lessens and dulls those feelings of love and commitment and devotion. Um, but like you said, it's the Savior's job to truly help them feel his love and to save them. That's not your job. But your job is to just have boundaries, ask the Savior what boundaries you should implement to protect yourself and how to navigate these feelings. And um, be patient with yourself. If you, if you mess up, if you feel lonely and you reach out, or if you are susceptible to abuse or get abused again, be patient with yourself and it's okay. It's a learning process. It's, it's a walking process. Um, and allow yourself to, to feel every emotion that you have. Um, I remember I was so dark and sad and heartbroken and my friends made me go to a game night with them. And it was the first time in months that I had smiled or laughed. And I felt like I was betraying my grief at that point. And because my grief was so all-consuming. Um, and I had to learn to allow myself to be happy when I felt happy and to be sad when I felt sad and to be lonely when I felt lonely. It's all about using your agency. Agency is the greatest tool you have in your journey of finding healing. You have to choose. You get to choose how do you react to the emotions that naturally come. You, get, you can choose to shut them off or you can choose to let them dwell, um, which is neither, neither is necessarily unhealthy. Sometimes you need to shut off your emotions and sometimes you need to dwell in them. Um, but just remember that if you stay in bed all day because you're feeling sad and depressed and you can't get out of bed, remember that it's your agency and it's okay to choose to do that. But you can also choose to smile and to go to a game and to laugh. And Agency allows you to 
choose to escape your emotions in healthy ways. It allows you to choose to bring God into your circumstance and into your grief process. Um, it allows you to, to find hope and to find healing if you choose it. And so as you're going through this process of trying to figure out how to navigate your own grief and then the seemingly contradictory uh, love and devotion that you have to people, just recognize that you have agency and God will consecrate and bless you with the ability to use that agency in good ways that will strengthen you and enlighten your journey. One of your that's a great answer. One of the parts of your story is that the places that were the, should be the safest places for you became hard places like church. And I think that's probably because it just reminded you of all your dreams and how different they were. And I, I assume church per se wasn't difficult or doctrine's not difficult, but just it just reminded you of everything that wasn't in your life. And it was just traumatizing. And I I can't remember where I was, and and even um, potentially God, who you know you've, and I love the way you work through that. Where these trauma, these things that could be the balm of Gilead became difficult, but you worked through them, and you're a you know faithful member of the church and have a great relationship with God. And I think that's a credit to you and your story. Um, what are your hopes? I guess I have a I have a question. If a listener's listening right now and is in a relationship and they're not sure if it's toxic, if, you know, they're, or if it's just they actually do have some things they need to work on to make the relationship work versus gaslighting and toxic relationship and what you were in where it was outside of your control to make it work and it was the right decision to end. Is there just any, and I maybe you've done that just sharing your story in a lot of the ways, Ashley, but are there things you would say to a listener to give them tools to know this is a survivable relationship where I need to improve, my partner needs to improve, and we need to have honest discussions about improving versus I'm in a toxic relationship and it actually needs to end. Yeah. Um, Knowledge is power. And that's where I got a lot of my power to set boundaries and to protect myself was through researching. using Webster's Dictionary to define words like abuse and gaslighting and um, reading Facebook pages of people who are in abusive relationships and recognizing my own relationship in that. And they use the word abuse. So maybe I might use the word abuse. And then also, um, I think it's also very important to do a deep self-reflection and um, see where you are if you have any of those toxic traits um, in yourself that you're exhibiting, um, whether it be a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism um, and doing that work with God and just asking Heavenly Father for revelation, asking God, saying, God, is my marriage, is my relationship abusive or are we just struggling to communicate? And then I would highly recommend um, going to finding a good therapist. Um, I've been in therapy, not with my original therapist, but I've been in therapy um, good. anywhere from once a week to once a month since uh, my divorce. And I'm still going to therapy. 
So I'd recommend finding a therapist that can talk with you and your partner. If your partner isn't willing to go to therapy, that might be a good insight. Um, That's a good piece of information to know. And so just researching and studying and sharing your experiences with your loved ones. It was such a surprise to my family um, and my friends because I didn't tell anyone. I was so embarrassed that my marriage wasn't perfect. I didn't tell anyone. And so if you're confused about something, if there's a situation that doesn't feel right to you, talk to the people you trust. Talk to your parents, talk to your friends, talk to your spouse's parents if you have a good relationship with them and get some insight. And, you know, people also told me I would, I, the few times I did express some concerns that I had in my marriage, um, I would be praised. I would People would say things like, wow, that's so difficult. If I were in your shoes, I don't know if I could do it. That's so amazing that you're that you're staying in the marriage. So I was almost praised for allowing the abuse to happen. Interesting. And so um, if if people you love are saying things like, I couldn't do it, or I wouldn't be willing to do that, that should be a red flag in your head. Um, even if it's followed by praise, um, it's just due to, I think, ignorance and lack of exposure to abusive relationships within the church, especially amongst uh, temple marriages and uh, people who exercise their priesthood and attend the church and the temple regularly. Um, we were praised for sticking in an abusive relationship because marriage is the end all be all sometimes in some people's minds. So even if it is followed with praise, those phrases that are, I could never do that or, um, I don't know why you accept that behavior. And then if you need to go into a therapist on your own, they won't go with you, go to a therapist on your own. Um, Even if you just have one session to just kind of bounce it off a professional who is trained in those terms and in abuse. And you can say, this is my situation. I'm not sure what it is. Get some insight from them. And they'll be able to say, this is just a normal difficult communication, um, but I don't necessarily think that there's real abuse here. And they can differentiate that from this is an abusive relationship with um, someone who's narcissistic or someone who's gaslighting and manipulative, and it's not going to change or it's not going to get better. So they can help. Talk about your hopes for the future. Do you hope to be married again? Or is that just kind of walking back into potential trauma and opening your heart again to another man and a marriage? That that seems really scary. So just talk about yeah. how you're navigating that. So it's both. It's I'm I'm excited and I'm hopeful, but it's also opening my heart up. And the one piece that it might sound a little cynical, but the one piece that I kind of hold on to is that is if I can, if I can get through what I went through, God has proved himself and I've proved to myself that I can get through hard things. So if heaven forbid, I ever had to walk through that again, I can do it. I love that. And there's nothing I couldn't do. And so I'm not going to allow the fear of going through what I went, even though it is terrifying and I don't want to go through it again and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I have faith that if by horrible luck and circumstances that I had to walk through it again, I would be strong enough and God is strong enough and together we could do it again. 
And so I don't let that fear negate my hope. I acknowledge it and I work through it and I'm continuing to work through it, but um, I am hopeful and I'm, I'm excited to have a family and to grow in love. And I'm going to be a much better wife the second time around because I've learned so much. And I'm going to be a much better mother because I went through this than I would have if I had children with my first husband. And so God is good and he's setting me up for a lot of success. I love your answer there. Um, I thought of the road to healing you're on. And to me, the road to healing should be independent of getting married again. And I, mm-hmm. I think you've taught that, but I've maybe five years ago, I would have thought, well, Ashley's going to finally heal when she, you know, is married again. It's sort of, I don't know if this is a fair analogy. It's like a mother or parents losing a baby uh, stillborn, and they're going to finally heal when they have a, another child. And I just think that doesn't heal the loss of a first child. And I guess my point with your, with your, marriage then a divorce, I think the road to healing, it needs to be separate from just then getting married again. Mm-hmm. I think, and you're on that road and it's in, and what you're doing is within your control and it's Jesus and it's a therapist and it's personal revelation and you're doing that. And I really think you're going to have a great next marriage. Um, but I don't think you need to have a great next marriage to be fully healed. Cause I, I th- totally agree. I think, I think, and I think whoever, and you know, I've said this in a few podcasts, I got married at 28. And so as I aged up, um, I did start to date divorced women. And I was struck, I didn't marry a divorced woman, but I was struck with their maturity, the depth of the conversations we had, and their outlook on life. And just that experience to me just did a 180 because I thought I'd never married a divorced woman. And it just changed me because I thought, wow, all the attributes I'm actually looking for in a woman, um, the two divorced women I dated had them. And it was part of this incredibly difficult journey they'd been on. And so, uh, you know, I'm not your bishop or your <laughs> your dad or um, any standing in your life, but I just would want to fill you with hope just as a friend that some guy is going to look at this experience and as he gets to know this experience better and he will be able to handle the pain of it and he will want to know, you know, tell me what really went on and he'll be able to sit with you and all that pain and he'll want at some, maybe it won't be the first date, but at some point <laughs> yeah. and you will be able to sit with him and stuff that maybe no one else has ever been able to really go there with him. And it'll be part of the thing I think that'll, one of the reasons you'll fall in love with each other is just this depth of understanding trauma and pain and the atonement and complex questions about personal revelation and God that will draw you together. And I think it makes you a better person. And I think that's Heavenly Father sitting next to you, just giving you hope about the future and the kind of wife you're going to be, the kind of mother you're going to be, the kind of conversations. You know, some guy's going to recognize that you are going to be able to have conversations with my sons and daughters because of this experience that will help them um, in a way that, you know, I am really glad that you've gone through this because it not only helps me, but it helps our future kids. And so maybe that's part of mortality is looking difficult experiences as their ability to help and heal others. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's why I think we need each other and we need each other in our vulnerable stories to share vulnerable stories because then we're able to connect with each other in a more honest way and in a way then we can truly know where someone is and help heal them. Um, so I don't know if you agree with any of that, disagree with yes, it. That's just sort of me going totally. off. I totally agree. And I think that um, one thing that I had to learn is um, I, for a long time, I believed that I wouldn't be worthy of love until I was healed. That um, no one could love me or I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be good in a relationship until I was healed. And what I recognized is that um, my healing has nothing to do with my relationship cool. or my ability to be in a relationship or hold a relationship or be worthy of the love of someone else. Those are two independent things. And so um, even there are people who get married very quickly after their divorce is finalized. And I think that they still have a journey of healing, even though they are now entered into a new relationship your pain and sorrow and trauma doesn't make you unworthy of or undeserving of that kind of thing. It just means that you can, you can have pain and trauma coexist with joy and happiness. And so, um, that's cool. And I'm going to learn things that I didn't, that haven't been healed when I enter into another relationship, because there's going to be things that trigger me or that um, remind me of my trauma that right now I'm not in a relationship. And so I don't, I'm not triggered or, or traumatized by those things. And so I don't even recognize that they need to be healed. And so that's what, um, I, today I am worthy of love and, and the love of everyone, the love of God, the love of friends, the love of a romantic partner. And I'm still healing from my divorce and both are okay. And both are okay. Remind me of, a, I really agree with what you said. I remember a friend who lost um, a spouse and then got remarried and he talked just about the very, it's a different situation, obviously, but he yeah. talked about, I'm in this situation, still grieving a spouse. And that didn't, that didn't stop just because there was a new marriage. Mm -hmm. Those were two different things, just like you're talking about that. And to me that, I love that. And just the insights that I wouldn't understand. So. That's really very, very thoughtful. Um, and I keep thinking, you know, you're 25 um, with sort of these uh, insights into healing, into trauma, into therapy, into the atonement, into the role of Heavenly Father that are pretty unique for your age um, in a wonderful, beautiful way, but with the ability then to help others um, that need to be walked out of these difficult, complex situations and know the right things to say. I just want to give, you know, our listeners kind of my, just, I think you're really courageous and you don't probably want to hear just me go off about, I think you're really courageous. I think you're really brave. I think you've had to walk a very unique road without much of an owner's manual and a lot of people that have done this before you. And I think you've done a really good job. And I think you've worked really hard to get yourself in a good place. And I think that's a credit to you and your heavenly parents and the atonement and therapy and family and friends. And I think you're now in a position that's one of the great gifts of mortality is to heal and help other people because you know this road. Any wow. final thoughts you love? We're kind of at the hour and 15 minute mark, which is trying where I'm trying to end podcasts these days, listeners. Yeah. 
any final things you'd like to share with our listeners, Ashley? Yeah, I just, just to kind of close, I just want to say that um, grief is grief regardless of the cause of it or the, the origin point of it. So the principles and the lessons that I've learned don't only apply to being divorced. They apply to every kind of grief you can imagine. And the Savior will be there through every kind of grief that you can imagine or that you can experience here in mortality. And so my only plea is that if you're not sure if God is there or if he's listening or if anything that I said is true, you can borrow my testimony for a time until you develop one of your own or until you feel light enough to be able to seek out God in that way. But I believe that he will be there for you. And grief is hard and it's difficult and it's tricky. And it's just the worst. (laughs) Grief is the worst. But there is hope and there is healing and light and love and enjoyment, even while you're going through it. So I am always open to discussing. I'm very very open with the experiences that I had and the lessons that I've learned. And um, hopefully it can just help someone else on their journey that they're going through. It is. So on behalf of all of our listeners, um, Ashley Rankin, thank you so much for having the courage to come on the podcast. And thank you, our listeners. This is Richard Osler, your host, signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thank you.